Father, we thank you for this time. Magnify your name. We, we want to know you more. We want to understand you from your truth and according to your truth. And so I ask that you help us to be helpful for that. And that as we learn more of you, that we would walk ever closer with you. And that that would impact our daily lives going forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are moving on into uh, the, the study of the goodness of God, part four. With the topic today being God's wrath, right? Which may seem a little bit incongruous. Goodness of God, God's wrath. But just a quick reminder from the beginning of the series, we said that the goodness, when we're referring to the goodness of God, we refer to characteristics which emphasize God's perfection and how he deals in relationship with his creatures. Okay, so uh, some of the stuff prior in terms of uh, the simplicity of God, the immutability of God, the eternality of God, and those types of things, those are not necessarily how God deals with his creatures so much as they were just who God is in and of himself in his unique Godhood. But as we've moved now into the goodness of God, then we're, we're, we're looking at, well, how does this immutable perfect, uh, eternal God then deal with his creatures. And we've talked about love and mercy and, and jealousy even last week. And so today we talk about wrath because wrath is part of God's perfect dealing with his creatures. Now, not, not if we picture wrath from the standpoint of maybe uh, sinful human expressions of wrath. Yeah, the dictionary defines wrath as a strong, stern, or fierce anger, a deeply resentful indignation, ire, or a vengeance or a punishment as the consequence of anger. And, you know, if you're like me and just the context of humanity and people around us, it's, it's easy to have those words quickly make us think about the wrath of man. To think of a person who is so prone to fierce or explosive anger that you just have to walk on eggshells around him. You don't want to set the time bomb off. Or maybe a, co a common pop culture uh, ideas or pictures where, you know, like a, well, every movie that Liam Neeson is ever in, apparently. You know, the wronged individual who goes on a, on a rampage of just inordinate and, and, and in incredible amounts of vengeful wrath because of a wrong done. If those are the ideas in our head as we hear the word wrath, and then pair it with the name God, we have to put those ideas out because we're not talking about men. We're not talking about man and how they act or live or do, but we're talking about God himself, much like jealousy last week, right? We have to put the, the, the understandings of men and their jealousy out when we consider God and how he communicates his jealousy because the wrath of God is untainted by the wrong expressions of wrath of his creatures. We have to be reminded by J.I. Packer. He says, when scripture speaks anthropomorphically, giving um, words of, of men or actions of men being attributed to him so that we can understand him, when scripture speaks anthropomorphically, it does not imply that the limitations and imperfections which belong to the personal characteristics of us sinful creatures belong also to the corresponding qualities in our holy creator, 
Rather, it takes for granted that they do not. You hear that different presupposition? Starting with the idea that God is not like us. And God himself says that. You, you thought I was like you. What a foolish presupposition to come to me thinking that I'm like you, right? And so as we consider God's wrath, we must not come with the thought that God's wrath is like what we see around us. And this morning, then, we want to let the wrath of God be explained and described by God's Word so we get a full picture of our glorious God because we can't ignore it. And some people want to. Some people want to say, they want, they want to try to put away anything about the wrath of God. They want to try to ignore anything about the anger of God. And they want to just focus on the love of God. But... If God is wrathful, but we refuse to acknowledge it or rightly uh, think about it, then do we truly know God? Do we truly worship God? If we say, I'm, I'm going to ignore and not think about and not understand that attribute of who God is as he has shown himself to be? A.W. Pink says, our readiness or our reluctancy to meditate upon the wrath of God becomes a sure test of our heart's true attitude toward Him. If we do not truly rejoice in God for what He is in Himself, and that because of all the perfections which are eternally resident in Him, then how dwelleth the love of God in us? You understand what he's saying? You can't say, I love this and this about God, but I'm not going to think about this or love this about God. Because then you don't truly know or love God. And so this is the importance of understanding the wrath of God. Rightly, responding rightly. So let's, let's seek to define the wrath of God this morning. Wayne Grudem says God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. MacArthur and Mayhew say that Scripture speaks often of the wrath of God as his response to sin. Wrath differs from jealousy and hatred in that, one, jealousy is more focused on the specific sin of idolatry. Wrath opposes our sin in general. And two, jealousy and hatred are motives for wrath. Wrath actually executes our punishments. Dr. Wehmeyer says that God's infinite anger Wrath is God's infinite anger and hatred toward all that is wicked and therefore loathsome in his sight. I mean, it can be hard to, to look at words like infinite anger and hatred. And yet, we're going to find out later on that that is both <laughs> accurate and it actually really, really helps us to even just understand our own place and walk before God and with God and His perspective towards, towards the world, towards the gospel. A.W. Pink says, The wrath of God is His eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. That's 
hands down my favorite phrase. We could just stop right there. But what we have here in these definitions are a couple of key elements, okay? First, wrath is always focused for God. God is not a, like a wrathful being who's like, again, what we, what we may think in terms of men around us. God is not a wrathful being like that short-tempered man, the short-fused man who's ready to blow up at the slightest provocation, or even no provocation at all. No, God's wrath is always appropriately focused, and that's an important element in those definitions. And then he's appropriately focused his wrath on sin and sinners, and this is the second key element. See, there's always an object to God's wrath, and there's always a righteous reason reason for the expression of that wrath. Sin and sinners draw the wrath of God appropriately, righteously, justly, and according to God's holiness. But there's always an object to God's wrath and a righteous reason for the expression, sin and sinners. And, that, and that's important because we cannot, uh, thinking, okay, well, God is wrathful. God has wrath. Wrath is part of God's being. We can't then think, well, okay, God is sitting up in heaven with a furrowed brow and a lightning bolt in his hand, just waiting, uh, to, or, or even just willy-nilly, flinging a bolt of his wrath down upon somebody he's just choosing to kind of flippantly be angry with. Nor is God perpetually wrathful in character such that he sits there hoping someone will push him into expressing his wrath because he's just got all this pent-up rage and he wants to just express it. That's not God's wrath. Wrath is indeed part of God's eternal character, but... It is elicited from him perfectly and appropriately against sin and sinners. Again, A.W. Pink is helpful in thinking this through. He says this, Now the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is his faithfulness, power, or mercy. It must be so. For if there is no, for there is no blemish whatever, nor the slightest defect in the character of God. And yet, yet there would be if wrath were absent from him, because indifference to sin is a moral blemish. And he who hates it, sin, is, or he who hates it not, rather, is a moral leper. How could he, who is the sum of all excellency, look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice? wisdom, and folly? How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? The very nature of God makes hell as real a necessity, as imperatively and eternally requisite as heaven is. Not only is there no imperfection in God, but there is no perfection in Him that is less perfect than another. Okay? So it's important to note there how pink coordinates wrath with God's holiness 
and his righteousness. I mean, think of the gospel itself. Think of the very gospel. What did Christ pay if God is not in his holiness and in his justice and in his righteousness wrathful against sin? Why fear the Lord as righteous judge if there is no holy hatred and punishment for wrongdoings? But why respect or, or, or fear the Lord if he has no wrath against sin? The perfect and appropriate wrath that God Almighty has against sin is both required in his character and indeed is one of the core elements of our need for the gospel. All right, so let's look at some, let's look at some scripture texts together this morning to uh, make sure and prove the point by God's word. All right, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, there are eight words that are used to communicate in this vein of thought. The Greek New Testament, there are three words, and they are, they're all translated uh, something like anger or fury or uh, wrath or rage or indignation. A.W. Pink, again, he notes that a, story, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture, to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. And that's not to then diminish love and tenderness, but it is to highlight the fact that what we are studying today is who God is. Because God is holy, He hates all sin. And because He hates all sin, His anger burns against the sinner. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation, it's one of the words, every day. So let's look at some declarations of wrath as a part of the character of God. If we read in um, Exodus 32, and I'm taking a lot of this from Justin McKitterick in the Theology 1 class in TES, so I'm thankful for that. If we read in Exodus 32... Verses 9 to 10. This is after the, the golden calf incident. And we're all, I, th I think, very familiar with that. Moses comes down from the mountain after receiving the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if he looks like Charlton Heston, but I'm sure there's some similarities. He comes down from the mountain. He's got the tablets in his hand. And he sees the, 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 the Israelites worshiping. And he's angry. And the Lord is angry. And... Um, he chucks the, the tablets. But in that chapter, the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Sin, sinners, God's wrath, God's anger. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy 29... Okay, when Moses is, is giving the, the covenant blessings and cursings as the people are about to go into the promised land, and he basically charts out the future for the Israelites and says, here's what's going to happen if you, if you honor the Lord and serve the Lord and obey the Lord, all these blessings. Here's what's going to happen if you uh, don't obey, if you disobey. Here's all the cursings and the punishments. And then he basically says, and by the way, this is what you're going to do because I know you. And he basically promises that if you pursue disobedience and unfaithfulness, then the Lord is going to um, punish the land, punish you, take you out of the land, uh, reduce the land to rubble. And he says this in tw chapter 29, verse 22. Now, 
the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, they will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it, like the overflow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? And then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the hand, the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. I'm going to push pause there and, and point you back last week to the lesson on jealousy. You remember one of the focuses of the jealousy was the, the people's faithfulness to their God. Jealousy provoked sin, wrath expressed. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse, which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. So you see, there, God has anger. In fact, God has fury, and God has great wrath. It's focused, and it's rightly drawn about because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, because of his justice, and by the heinousness of people's sin, and by the heinousness, the detestable nature of the unfaithfulness, even, of God's people. Even just in his statements about his own character, listen to what he says in Nahum Chapter 1 in the very beginning. This is an oracle to Nineveh. Right? So this is not the people of God, but this is a warning to people who are characterized by sin. And God is saying, this is, this is who I am. Listen to his description. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. But here's some focus. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Ah, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So those are some of the Old Testament understandings of just the declarations of the fact that, you know what? God is wrathful. We need a right understanding of who, what that means and how, how he is in that way. But we cannot say to the, to the, the ignoring of those passages that no, there, there is no wrath and... Um, this is not just an Old Testament thing either. In John chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see eternal life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Romans 1, verse 18. can't read the whole passage, but I want to highlight a couple portions here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Okay, so this, again, has a lot to do with the focus of God's wrath being against sin and sinners. And here, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, against sin and sinners. But now what's interesting is look in verse 24. Because of that, in his revealing of his wrath, verse 24, therefore God gave gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness, and this is even even helpful in my own thinking. One of the ways in which the wrath of God is revealed against sin and sinners is by giving them over and letting them go into headlong plunges into further sin. So we have to even just look around us at society and understand the, the context of what's going on. But Colossians 3 says this, therefore, and this is very reminiscent of what we've heard in Ephesians, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, sin. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked, and you were living in them. And so we've seen already um, just the, the, the kind of the comprehensiveness of the wrath of God. But it just, it just keeps going. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, the Thessalonians, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Revelation 6, as God's eschatological and final judgment begins to be poured out upon righteously and from his holy character begins to be poured out upon the earth and upon mankind, here's their response. Men, from the greatest to the smallest, from the kings to the servants, say this, to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? This is, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God who, who loved, was the expression of God's love and grace and mercy so much that he bled and died to take away our sins. But he has wrath against sin and against sinners. Listen to the nature of Christ's second coming in Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword 
so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. By his character, by his position, by his being, by his role, he has prerogative to express wrath. And we see certain displays of his wrath throughout Scripture. Think of Nadab and Abihu, right? And they had been given commands of what kind of incense and what kind of offerings to offer. And they give a wrong type. They put strange fire. And in Leviticus 10, fire came up from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. But then listen to this. Moses said to Aaron, it's what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Holiness and wrath. Okay? Not not willy-nilly wrath, not characteristic, ready-to-blow wrath, but a wrath that is appropriately focused and justly expressed. In the, in the face-off with Coram, uh, Korah and the, and the dissidents <laughs> as, they, uh, as they argue with Moses, Moses says this, If the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up, with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. You hear that connection? They've spurned the Lord, and the wrath of God is set upon them, and the ground does indeed open up and swallow them whole. And then later on, in the next day even, the people start to grumble, Moses, it's your fault that those people died. And a plague breaks out, and Moses says, to his faithful followers, get away from among this congregation. Oh, God says this, sorry. Get away from this congregation that I may consume them instantly. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. So we, we, we cannot ignore it. We have to understand what brings God's wrath about? What is God's wrath aimed at? What is the extent of God's wrath? Terrifying and tremendous indeed. And then we also see it in the eternal judgment and expression of wrath against sin and sinners in Revelation 20. John the Revelator writes, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The final and eternal manifestation and expression of God's wrath against sin and against sinners is hell. It's real. It's terrifying. And it's God's wrath against sin and against sinners. Some observations and conclusions that we can take away from this is that, again, like I said already, God's wrath is not just sort of there waiting to bubble over. God's wrath is always appropriately focused and expressed in action. 
we see, we saw, rather, that God's wrath is expressed both on this earth and eternally. We see manifestations in the past, on the earth, in immediate physical life situations. We see current manifestations in the culture around us, like Romans 1 said. We see future manifestations of what both God will do on this planet in the midst of his judgment and then also the eternal wrath that is to come forever and ever as God expresses his eternally holy and his eternal justice in eternal punishment against sin. We see that God's wrath is both a judicial and relational expression of his hatred of sin. We also can see in Scripture that God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus who was a propitiation in, the, in that very word. Look in, look in 1 John with me. And that very word is the idea of satisfaction. God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus, who was a propitiation, a satisfaction of the wrath of God for the sins of those who believe. 1 John 2.2. 2. This is what was preached just a few weeks ago. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, for he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Look over in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So even as terrifying and even as horrendous and 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 eternal as God's wrath is against sin and sinners, he does extend grace. He does extend love and mercy and justly satisfies his wrath in the gospel. It's also important as we again consider who God is and even how all this comes to be in his character and relate it to us and and our fallen man uh, uh, humanity, um, that God's wrath ultimately glorifies himself. Okay, let's just look real quick at Revelation 19, verse 1 to 6. This is important. Because if we understand who God is and what he's about, then we understand that as God he has priority in any and everything and that his glory truly is paramount in his own being, in his own creation, in his own expression of his being. We see this in Revelation 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservant's honor. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Why? Because he has in his holiness and in his justice and in his kingship poured out his wrath upon sin and sinners. We see God's wrath and God's patience, though, also biblically connected. We read this in Romans chapter 2. 
It says, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, God suspends wrath and suspends judgment in so many ways right now because of his kindness. It will not be suspended forever. It will be expressed finally and ultimately against all sin and against all sinners. And yet, in his kindness and in his patience, he says, wait. Come, be forgiven. Have my wrath against you satisfied by the work and the blood of Christ. As John Frame says, so God delays his wrath for the sake of his love. And this is all very heavy in many ways. As, as holy and just and righteous as God is, so proportionate is his wrath towards sin and sinners. And I think we can forget that sometimes. And that's why sometimes if you're like me, you tend to just sort of rationalize or, or downplay sin. But as holy and righteous and just as God is, so proportionate is his wrath towards those things, sin and sinners, which defy and break and defile those. And so with that in our minds, we need to briefly consider the believer's relationship to God's wrath. And that relationship as believers is one of safety from wrath. Safety from wrath. And so as terrifying and as, as, as fearsome as that is, there is great safety and solace and comfort in being a believer, a true believer in relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there are consequences for sin in the lives of the believers, right? Hebrews says that the father chastises his children, chastens his, his children, disciplines them for their good. And so there's consequences for sin, Hebrews says he disciplines those he loves. Paul told the Corinthians that some of them had even fallen asleep and they died because they were defiling the Lord's table and how, that they, were, how they were taking it. And I think those are certainly examples of how God is still provoked to action by sin in believers' lives. But I think those are examples of chastening and in the, in the situation with the Corinthians of, of homegoing of believers so that God's name would not be further defiled, but we need not fear the wrath of God because of the propitiatory work of Christ. In Christ, the wrath of God is fully satisfied, fully, which if we can just explode and enlarge our understanding of how much wrath God has against sin and sinners, you know what that does then? Is explode and enlarge our understanding of how marvelous the work of Christ is on our behalf, right? Because it's done. It is satisfied, not partially, not 70%, but fully 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is the propitiation, right? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is not the righteousness of God half, the righteousness of man half. 
Okay, but we might become in Christ, in his work, the righteousness of God in the way that God views us in connection to his wrath. We are absolved from wrath and given righteousness and right standing with the Lord. God's love is demonstrated, his justice vindicated, his holiness expressed, and his wrath satisfied through Christ's life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. So how do we apply this then? How do we, how do we apply it, understanding the greatness and the gravitas of God's wrath against sin and sinners, coupled with who we are in Christ as believers? Well, the first one is just to rejoice in your deliverance from wrath. Rejoice in it. Don't, 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 because of the gospel, then try to try to sugarcoat or to, 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 you know, to, to paint over the wrath of God and to make it go away. Understand it, grasp it, tremble before it even, so that we might then all the more rejoice in the gospel, the saving work of Christ that, that satisfies that wrath on our behalf. Remind yourself of this every day. When you take communion and we take that cup and, and, and we understand this is the blood of Christ poured out for you, remind yourself, why? Because God's wrath against sin is so great that his very son had to die so I could drink this cup and be in fellowship with him. And rejoice <laughs> that Christ endured it all and said, it is finished. Also, understand the intensity of God's hatred for sin. And look, this is something we all need to grow in. Not a single one of us ever will appropriately understand God's hatred of sin. And so we must never, and I'm talking to myself as much as any of us, we must never think, I feel it enough. If we look in Mark 9, real, real quick, Mark chapter 9, verse 47 to 48, Jesus is giving warnings, and this is the end of a passage with some repeated statements, but Jesus says in verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. He's talking about sin. He's talking about temptation to sin. He's not talking about literally cutting his eye out, but doing whatever necessary to remove sin. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, for it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, the final and eternal destination of, and expression of God's wrath against sin and sinners, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so that's how much our hatred of, of sin should be. Is that I... Understanding what God's wrath means for sin and sinners, I would rather take as extreme action as necessary in order to prevent living in such a way as, as, as sin and sinners deserving of God's wrath. In that intensity, we must understand our God as a consuming fire. Hebrews, speaking to believers, says, remember, God is a consuming fire. Worship for him must be with an attitude of reverence, not flippancy. Because God, in his holiness, 
is a consuming fire. He will not consume us, right? He says, therefore, we are not consumed, but he is a consuming fire. And we can't forget that. And so we offer worship with reverence and awe. And finally, we need to feel the weight of impending wrath for unbelievers. Mark 9, verse 47 to 48, Jonathan Edwards says of this passage, he says, this phrase, uh, specifically thinking about the, um, the fact that their worm does not die, Edwards says this, it's taken from Isaiah 66, 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. The expression of the worms not dying in the carcasses of these men, and he's going to repeat carcass a lot, and I found myself cringing as I was reading this, going, man, Edward's enough with the carcasses. But it's, it's actually really helpful because it just kind of forces into your mind this picture that the biblical writer is trying to help you see. So embrace the phrase carcass this morning. The expression of the worms not dying in the carcasses of these men alludes to this. When a dead carcass lies upon the face of the earth till it begins to putrefy, it will presently be overrun with worms. The carcass will be filled within and without with worms gnawing upon it. When a dead carcass lies putrefying upon the earth after a while, the carcass will be consumed and the worms will die. But the worms that shall gnaw upon the carcasses of these men shall not that is, their souls shall always be tormented. The similitude holds forth exceeding misery. How miserable must a man be to be alive and yet have his flesh and bowels and vitals all filled with worms continually gnawing upon his body as they do upon a dead carcass. And we need to feel that weight. As we rejoice in the work of Christ on our behalf, we need to feel the weight of that impending wrath for the unbelievers around. And as we feel that weight, then to share the news of salvation from wrath, right? Be free with the best news ever that that need not be the destination and, and, and in the eternal sentence for those around. But we have through the life, the perfectly righteous life, the substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have safety from that wrath. And anybody can have it if they repent and believe. And if you're here this morning and you have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you have no safety from this wrath. But today can be the day of salvation for you so that you need not fear that wrath if you acknowledge your sinfulness and put your faith in Christ. And so feel that weight, but let the, let the weight of that feeling springboard you into joy and rejoicing as a believer and a burden for the unbelievers around. Let's pray. Lord God, this is, this is a, in some ways a hard truth. We, we, we tremble before you. And just remember to acknowledge that you are not like us. Keep us humble, I pray. Yet as we learn about you, as we live our lives, that we would be humble before you to understand you and your majesty and in your character. God, keep us from doling the, the, the glory of who you are down to, um, down to the likes of us. Give us a compassion 
and an empathy and a, a desire, just a, just a, a wait for the unbelievers around us. Give us opportunities to share the good news of Christ this week. And we pray for receptivity. And we pray for hearts that are just amazed at the grace given us in Jesus Christ. Uh, remind us of that often, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.